Hello and welcome back to another exciting episode of Vagabond Actors, where we discuss the craft, the mindset, the business, and pretty much everything in between. My name is Brian Casp, and I'm an actor and an acting teacher here in Prague, the Czech Republic. As always, I'm joined by my two fellow coaches and teachers and actors, Gary Condes, joining us from London, the UK. Hey, Gary, how are you? Hey, Brian, I'm good, thanks. And joining us from maybe sunny Mallorca, Spain, it's Andrea Helene. How are you, Andrea? I'm fine, thank you. Yes, it's been a little sunny here. You know, people are keying up for a spring season, which hopefully means a little bit more um, freedom. Freedom. I like that word. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Very, very nice. Well, tonight we are going to delve into some listener questions. One of my friends here in Prague, Petra Buchkova, has three quite tantalizing questions, and we're going to dig into them on this episode. But before we do that, we are going to check in as we do every week and see what kind of business or career advancement or just moving forward we've done this week. Well, this week I have been rounding off and coming to a close on my present courses, scene study and casting technique, as I prepare for the next round next week. So we were doing a lot of wrapping up in the scene study course in order to just really clarify certain elements that we've been going into. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm often getting a sort of observation and a question about certain ways of doing things. It's like a lot of actors understand the technique or certain tools, but it's how to go about implementing them and the process with which they engage with them. I often get questions about. And today, what came up was interesting in terms of being free and doing all the preparation and then this notion of letting go. But while he lets go and then it's all gone. (laughs) and there's nothing carrying on through into the the take or into the final rounds Mm -hmm. of rehearsal or whenever it is that he has to let go. He was going, what's wrong? Because I have lots of fun in the preparatory work and I'm really doing it and being free with it. And then all of a sudden I get to performance and it all seems to just drift away. And that seemed to be a common thing with a lot of actors that they've experienced it. And I mean, we talked about it. And one of the things that came up was the difference between letting go and leaving it alone. Mm. Mm -hmm. But also the degree with which you prepare and program your performance into you. Mm -hmm. That sounds awfully scientific, but it's about absorbing really getting it into you, whatever it is you've got to get into you through practice, through repetition. I mean, there's no accident that in Italy, rehearsal is repetition, and in France, it's repetition, you know, going over the task and practicing it almost like a sports person, you know. Mm. So that was a very interesting conversation because it gets down to some kind of nitty gritty things that you often can't really teach. There's not a kind of plaster you can put on that in order for it to magic itself better. Yeah. In my class, we often talk about the idea, not just of letting go of everything, but of letting go more of the control so that you are entering something with energy, but not really determining where it's going to go. When you let go, what are you actually letting go of? Right. Sometimes you might be letting go of the need to have it go in a particular direction and just seeing what happens. Where does it lead you? Yeah. Gary, I wanted to ask you the preparation work that your student is enjoying so much. I mean, it sounds like there's maybe a disconnect with making it ultimately really personal. Do you feel like sometimes the actors are doing the research almost as a checklist? You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I did that part and I did this thing. But that last piece of integrating it in a really personal way that's so intimate and clear that you almost can't tell anybody the kind of seeds that you've planted do you feel like that's a piece that could be missing or? Yeah, I think that is definitely a part of it because what he was alluding to was the actual things that he had to create in order to honour the circumstances and in order mm-hmm. to come alive in the circumstances. So that is certainly one thing that Brian mentions that needs to be let go of, which is control, because then you've just mm-hmm. got to let the preparation meet the moments like we say. But I think his problem was, I feel like I'm doing work, but then it doesn't stick. So I think the problem is his connection to it, yes. And making things personal, as personal as you can, is going to help it. What we're talking about is stickiness of your work. And if it is personal, it's more liable to stay with you because you've got a very strong and deep connection to it. We're talking about the degree 
and sensitivity of engagement with whatever it is you're using to stimulate yourself. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about programming, I'm talking about spending time splashing about in it. Yes. You know, and I often advise, I go, look, if you're having a bath, do it in the bath. Just close your eyes. You're in a relaxed place and maybe create those events that help you to stimulate your relationship with this person visually, sensorily, emotionally, and all of that stuff. But I think the issue here is the degree of depth and time one spends with that depth in order for Mm -hmm. it to become part of you. Yeah, so interesting. So funny, it occurs to me as that you're talking about it, that in so many other arts... (laughs) They'll talk about the actual work and the craft differently, like this, this strange thing that we do, you know, getting inside this other personality and planting memories and planting experiences. It must be for many people such a strange, strange alchemy that we discuss, but it's magical. Yeah. To quote your beloved Sanford Meisner. <laughs> yes. We are basically playing around in the harem of our head. Mm-hmm. It's an imaginative world that yes. we can jump around in. Mm-hmm. But it was funny because someone else commented when we were talking about this, my God, but that's going to take a long time. What if you've got a whole play? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. got you got a play which is about 60 <laughs> pages and you're playing the lead part, then you better start to put some time aside and do the bloody work. <laughs> because someone will be, you know. It's hard work in terms of time and application and energy, but it's not hard in terms of the enjoyment of it and the attention that you need to do to put into it. All that is you should be want to do. The curiosity with what you find Mm -hmm. out, the exploration that you have, you know, all of that is fun. Right. That just reminded me of in one of the Stanislavski books, his students were complaining about not having a break, you know, Mm -hmm. weekend off or something like that. And he was like, what do you want to take a break from? Being creative? (laughs) (laughs) The reward is doing the work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes we just want to sit down with Netflix. I'm sure that's what his students wanted to do as well. Yeah. It's like what Gary Oldman says. He says, it's not so much for him how well he knows it. It's how long he's known it, which allows him to know Mm -hmm. it really well if he's got the time Mm -hmm. to dig and dig and revisit and keep digging and revisit Mm -hmm. and revisit and keep digging and living it uh it's never ended it's not like okay i've done my analysis i know what i'm gonna do that's it it's like no i'm gonna gonna bring it alive again in me today so it lives it lives it's got to live very cool there's so much there there's so many more episodes you guys i was thinking of two episodes right as we were talking about this. Right. Yeah. Um, I love it. So we're, we'll have stuff to talk about for years to come, I hope. Andrea, what about you? What have you been up to this past week? I have been teaching. We're working on the Spoon Rivers, and this also presents a number of challenges to the students. Again, the Spoon River anthology work by Masters is used as a way to explore monologues, speeches, stories, however you want to refer to it, and give students a way into handling that type of material. We did an exercise that I learned at Playhouse West in Los Angeles. It's really exciting, but it's an exercise, a group improvisational exercise that's done on stage as a group. And we did it via Zoom. And, you know, they were all game for it. They had lots of questions before we began, but they were game for it. And it was very interesting to see the ways in which the format informed how it went and then because of time constraints we dove into the spoon river work but they're doing well i mean they have good curiosity about it and i hope they're having fun with it and i see already lots of progress but you know also this idea of investigating how much time to put into something and how far to go when it comes to personalizing things and making them specific and really readying yourself for the next time up to bat i think these questions are very intriguing and I'm watching with curiosity to see how, so to speak, today's students are handling the limitations of the format. 
And let's say there's at least a 10 to 15 year span from when I first learned this work to now. And so there are also cultural and generational changes that we see in the students in their understanding of what hard work is and what it means to be patient and the expectation of how much time to put into things and when they'll become experts in it. Like all of that is also tickling my brain a bit as I watch them. So I'm having a very interesting and enjoyable time working with them. Cool. That sounds fantastic. Mm. I wonder from a teacher's perspective, how much of this habit that's been built up over the past year of doing online classes is going to stick when things start to open up again. And I actually hope that some of it does stick. Certainly for some classes, it's nice to be in the same room together, but I'm teaching some classes now that it's actually, it's okay to not be actually in the same room. Mm -hmm. It allows you to interact with people who don't have to be in the same geographical space, which is actually quite exciting, I think. That's right. Yeah. I think it's going to be less than it is now, but more than it was before the pandemic because people have got used to it and... I sometimes got people who would come for in-person coaching when I offered them Skype or FaceTime before this Zoom phenomenon started. They felt there was maybe they were cheated by it and it was Mm. better and more value for money if they got you in person. And I think Mm. that attitude has changed for sure. I mean, right now in my next course, which is new and it's developed over the last few months, but I've got someone in from Miami who's joining my course in the Mm -hmm. States, someone from South Africa. Mm -hmm. And these people have just checked out what the scene is in London and found me or whoever else, you know, just by making Google searches. They can't come here because of the cost normally, Mm -hmm. these centers of acting. So now now they're able to by Zoom. So maybe there'll be more of that international. Yeah. Well, the truth is that even I from Prague, I mean, I don't, I remember talking to you about this, Gary, a long time that I, I was like, if I was going to take a course with a teacher in London, pre-pandemic, pre-Zoom classes, I would have to actually carve out not only the time to be in London for five weeks or however long it would be, but I would have to say, I can't have my normal Mm -hmm. life wherever I'm living if I want to go and take this class in London or in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles or in New York or Mm -hmm. wherever. And I think that there will be some kind of market for these kind of classes for people coming from maybe smaller markets that don't have the wealth of teachers that these larger markets have. Mm -hmm. And doing classes. I know that I've benefited greatly from being able to connect with people as a student and yeah. as, a, as a coach E. Totally. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a workshop on the 13th of March and it's students mostly in Eastern Europe who are signing up. And that's really exciting. As you say, like the borders are falling a little bit in that sense with technology. There's just, there's another piece though. And I try to be very, very grateful and optimistic about the way that things are suddenly available to us in a whole new way. And from the students front, I saw something really interesting. I may have alluded to it in last week's podcast, but I'll say a little bit more about it. You know, there's a quality of interconnectedness when you're all sitting in a theater. And there's certainly if you're in a group of students for a period of time and you're in a healthy environment and hopefully a supportive environment, you really are creating a tribe and it can be very, very powerful. I mean, those connections can last years and years and you're seeing each other taking chances and risks and trying things and stretching yourselves. And you really become surprisingly aware of the capabilities of your fellow actors. And you become very comfortable with the many, many colors of emotion and human expression that are possible in that environment. And I see with students who are having to spend a lot of time deprived of that physical contact, there's a color to the interactions now that's a little quieter. It's a little less expressive. And I certainly saw in the improvisation that I set up for the students, there was a bit more aggression. For example, one student became very emotional at one point and I saw some of the other students sort of snickering. And I almost guarantee you if they'd been all on stage together, that never would have happened. Like in the moment on stage, when you have the ability to see somebody in pain or in isolation and move to them and put your hand on them or rub their head, whatever it is, express in some Mm -hmm. even nonverbal way, 
some human compassion and connection. And that's often our instinct, especially as actors. But deprived of that ability to be physically in the same room with one another, there are other ways that they express that energy. And it's not always as sympathetic as I would anticipate. And so for anybody organizing a group of actors or doctors or whatever on these formats to get people to tune in to each other in a way that's supportive and compassionate and where we're all focused on learning together, it's a very unique challenge. And I hope that we're all getting better at doing that because I think there's more of it ahead and it's necessary. Absolutely. So Brian, what have you been up to? Well, after all of that heartwarming and and kind of deep stuff, I feel like the things that I was going to talk about maybe (laughs) wouldn't be, it's it's not as deep what I have to say, but I've had two in-person castings. I had one today and I had one maybe a week or so ago. And it's very strange to be in person and to have the echo almost of being social with actors that I know from around town. And we all kind of showed up at the same time to this casting. And and they had said, we're going to schedule you. But then, of course, there were six actors in the waiting room. And it was just a strange feeling. But an interesting thing that's happening, and I don't know if it's just here or if it's at other places as well, is that the people who work in the casting office, because these castings are happening at a casting office, they aren't wearing masks in the office. Yeah. Oh. And I think it's because they feel like this is their space and they're in an office and Mm -hmm. they just weren't wearing Mm -hmm. masks. And the woman who checked me in put a mask on to come and check us in. But Mm -hmm. the office, it's not a huge room. It's maybe 50 square meters or something like that. And they are sitting at their desks doing their work without masks on. And the actors are sitting in the waiting room, which is just right across the room with masks on. Mm -hmm. And that's a weird position to be put in. Do you say something to them? Do you say, hey, can you please put your mask Mm -hmm. on? It feels like you're kind of in their house. You don't really Mm -hmm. want to make waves. But at the same time, they should be wearing a mask. I mean, you should be wearing a mask inside. And that's the rule. And I think people just aren't really following it. And it's a weird sensation to be put in the position where the social pressure, the peer pressure is to say, don't say anything. Mm -hmm. But what I want to do is be like, just put your mask on, put a mask on. Mm. There is a dereliction of duty there by the sounds of it. Yeah. What are the rules? You have to wear a mask in the workplace? I mean, those are the rules, the quote unquote rules. But I think I've been in so many situations where people are like, yeah, well, we don't really do. I mean, we're all kind of, which on one hand, you can kind of understand if you were working with the same people every day. But even then, it's a ridiculous thought to be like, well, we're all working together every day. So we don't have to follow these rules because everyone is meeting other people as well. You know, their families and their kids and who knows what, where it's going to come from. But especially in a casting office where... They've got a hundred people walking through. You don't. You have no idea what's going to happen. You know. So it it is a dereliction of duty. But it's really hard to be the one person who's going to be like, well, you guys all put masks on, and you know that they haven't been wearing masks at all anyway. So whatever's in the room is in the room. Hmm. So is it worth it to fight that fight? You know. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. It's a tough one. I mean, I suppose Mm. it's, um, yeah. I mean, how much do you want to get involved in it and how much, you know, that's, I suppose that's the thing. And I get that wearing a mask at work sucks. I get that it sucks to wear one. I'm not an idiot about wearing masks. And even when we had an in-person class, you know, because I was in charge, I was like, everybody is wearing a mask Mm -hmm. when we were doing in-person classes. And it sucks, mm. and I don't like it, and you don't like it, and nobody likes wearing one, but it's going to happen. And if you don't want to wear one, you don't have yeah. to come to class. But you know, when you come into a casting or into a meeting and there's that social pressure to not wear one because nobody else is, uh, it's, a, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a tough one. So anyway, let's get to these listener yeah. questions, yeah? <laughs> okay, Shall let's we? do it. This episode of the Vagabond Actors Podcast is brought to you by our friends at We Audition. Now look. We all know that auditioning in a pandemic sucks. You can't find the right partner. And if you do find the right partner, how are you going to connect with them in real time and have the read be seamless? Well, We Audition can help with that. They make it easy to find a partner and they take care of all of the technical stuff so that you can focus on what really matters, your audition and being awesome. Not only does We Audition allow you to find partners that can help you really kick ass, You can be a partner that helps other people really kick ass and get paid for it. There's other really great benefits to being a We Audition member 
You can have one-on-ones with top casting directors, you can get career advice from industry professionals, and a lot more. Right now, We Audition is offering a discount on membership to Vagabond Actors listeners when you sign up with the promo code VAGABOND25. So just go to weaudition.com, click on sign up, then click on the link where it says promo code. Put VAGABOND25 in the box and you'll get 25% off your membership. Now, back to the show. Several listeners answered our clarion call of we were asking for listeners to ask questions of us. And one of my friends here in Prague, Petra Butchkova, asked three, actually. So take it away, Petra. So the question is, from all the informations you got for your character, how do you extract to simplify? For example, I was given a character and I knew much about her. She used to be abused as a child and now she's somehow remembering that it happened but at the same time she's having kids and she's already not sure when she hugs them or kisses them if it's still the good kissing, good hugging or if it's over the line already and maybe she's even tempted to go over the line which sounds like a great complex character and but what if you have one sentence and one look to express it all or one scene but short or one dialogue where you speak about something else and this all should come out i realized when i try to play it all it does not read so for me it's very good to simplify what are your thoughts about that or experiences how to help yourself to play one thing simple thing strong thing how to choose I think it's a really interesting question and it's come up, you know, probably for each of us in our own acting experiences and for students. And I think in a way she's diagnosed the problem that she's trying to do everything at once. And that's where things can get tricky. We've talked more extensively about character backstory and what we think about that and which aspects of research we find helpful and which we find can be a distraction or an academic exercise. And so I would say, again, the goal with that kind of work is to understand and then to bring something closer to you, to bring something from an academic idea to a personal internal experience and understanding and an emotional understanding of something. So if the work that's been undertaken as the feeling of an exercise that you're doing because you think that's what you have to do in order to do it well but it just becomes this big blob of information that you feel that you need to carry around or a big like saint nicholas knapsack that you have to drag with you into the scene in order to show how much work you've done and how much heft there is in this character's story, then you are denying the simpler facets of what each scene is about and what each moment is about. You know, you can do all of that work and understand the weight of a character and the gravity of life experiences that that person has experienced. But in the moment, we still have to see the simple give and take of a scene. And we have to come back to what is the doing of the scene? What am I doing in this moment? Am I berating somebody? Am I coaxing them? Am I blessing them? Am I whispering sweet nothings? What am I doing in this moment? And get about doing that. And again, interestingly, I think there's a correlation to what we were talking about earlier. You know, are you trying to drag all of your stuff around with you or are you trusting that you've done personal work and you're going to leave it? You're going to leave the work behind so you can come play. And this is sometimes a hard thing for students to understand. For me, I tend to think of it as a circle. Like I go about the work of the preparation, but until I come back around to where I started, which is with a degree of openness and, you know, a lack of expectation about what something should be. When I come back to that, having gone around the circle and having done my investigations, and then I come back to a place of playfulness and openness, then I know I'm really ready. 
to me, what I'm hearing from her is getting so charged up by this idea of backstory that that becomes almost an obligation rather than something that can serve to set you free to fly in the right direction. Cool. I think both of us agree with that, Gary. Yeah. I mean, I would refer Petra to our episode about character biographies, research and history, because that is an extended episode of this kind of thing. And I'll kind of go over what was mentioned there in in a way. If it needs to be there in a scene, it should be in the script. And the script will give you an opportunity to bring to life, even just for a moment, some resonance or repercussion from the past or some deep backstory. Because if it's significant in the scene, then there should be a sign or a clue in there for you to be able to do something. The writer's telling you that the mention of diabetes and your relationship to it as a kid will spark some affinity to it. And therefore... Mm-hmm. You've got an opportunity to have a response or a moment, whether it's verbal or behavioral or physical. So I really do think that it should be encased in there if the writer wants it to be significant. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're in danger, as you were alluding to, Andrea, you're in, you're in danger of winking at the audience about all your painful history and baggage that you had when it's not relevant in this particular scene, because there is a doing that is more pressing, and that belabors a point and overburdens the action and then miscommunicates to the audience, and then they get confused. Exactly. So there's that. And I do believe that if it's really good writing, or it, you know, if it's good writing, the writer will give you a clue as to it having to resurface or it surfacing, however subtle or obvious it is. If it wants it resurfaced, then it will be there for you. But let's say the writing's not so good, or maybe you still want to create something around it. First of all, look at the script and the dialogue and the action and see if that supports it. Because first of all, you can't act generalities or overall info. It's got Mm -hmm. to be encapsulated in a moment, a behavior or an action. And I think for me, the guiding rule of thumb would be if you do want to bring something in that is connected to one's past or psychology or something, the question you've got to ask in order to justify is, is does it illuminate something about the character right here, right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In relation to what's going on right here, right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and with the person you're in and the action you're in and the circumstances you're in. And if the answer is yes, and there is a space to create some behavioral moment or physical action, then it should be singular. I'll give you an example. Marlon Brando played a racist, and I can't for the life of me remember what film it was in, but he played this racist, and he has this meeting with this black guy and it's all very cordial on the surface and then when he leaves Mm. he walks over to a chest of drawers takes out some air freshener he sprays all the air freshener everywhere now that crystallizes in one single moment it's almost symbolic Mm -hmm. his backstory his psychology and gives us so much insight in one physical action Mm -hmm. that we get it Mm -hmm. and apparently from reading his biographies and autobiographies that out there i've read pretty much all of them then that wasn't in the script he invented that yeah that to me is very intelligent use of one's background and past that is embodied Mm -hmm. in a physical action that just gets to the crux of who he is Mm -hmm. that was invented but i still think that there's got to be some kind of clue there as to what, whether you should bring something up. Well, I think also, you know, when you talk about clues and inventions of the moment, I mean, to me, the most beautiful ones spring up, not sort of from, oh, I've conceived of this the night before in the hotel room, but sometimes it really does come up improvisationally in the moment because you understand it so well. And those are the moments of play that can be truly brilliant. And hopefully you've got a director who can help you also plot out when certain colors get revealed or certain undercurrents really are are more visible to the audience and are more clearly influencing how a scene moves. But really, to me, it's like you've got to do that work to get yourself in the right playing field and then let the circumstances play upon you let the experience of being in the scene with that man who just makes you feel the way he was made to feel inspire you to pick up something and clean up after it 
this is not necessarily that was conceived of by him in the moment from everything I've read about and, and all the performances I've watched. And I think to get yourself really in that most creative, impulsive space, you're going to want to do the kind of homework that we're talking about, but you cannot drag it around like a big, heavy stone. I agree with both of what you guys said, but I'm going to go in a different direction. Okay. And that is this. Do it. Okay, ready? So I think that in the ideal world, what Gary and Andrea are saying is really what you should be aiming for. I'll also say that the script does a lot of the heavy lifting. And so if you are in a scene where previously the audience knows she was abused or something happened to her or something like that, but it doesn't really come up in the text. But the director says, I want you to have a moment here where you know, you're looking at your daughter and you're thinking about how you were abused and it's difficult or something like that. I think all you need to do is to have some kind of private thought. It could even be unrelated to the story. I know this is iconoclastic, but it could be unrelated to the story and you're just having a thought and looking at your daughter. And because you're working something out and you're thinking about something, the audience is going to ascribe your motivations behind that thought to what they know or what they think they know about your character. And that could do it. Now, that may not work in all situations, but that could do it where there's just a little something where you're not, where you're having some kind of thought. You don't have to really oversell it. And it doesn't have to be related to the plot or the actual circumstances. It just has to be something that's going on that you're thinking about. And the script and the knowledge that the audience has going into the scene, or maybe they'll go, oh, that was a strange moment. She was really there was something going on there. And then they later find out, oh, she was abused. Then they'll say, oh, that's what it was. That's what she was thinking about. It was, was the abuse there. So that's something that I know works. And, you know, maybe it's a shortcut, maybe it's not a gospel or something like that, but I know that having that kind of thought works. And the other thing that I'll say about this, and this comes up in class a lot when talking about scenes, and I, we might have even touched on it when we were talking about script analysis, is that anytime it seems like there are multiple things going on, it's going to be really tempting to try and play. Um, he wants to sleep with her, but he's also scared of opening up to her or something like that. I usually say, why don't you pick one at a time? Do one at a time. Don't do both. You can't really play both of those things at the same time. You got to do one and then do the other. Because what can happen is if you're getting pulled in opposite directions, it can look like you're not doing anything because you're not moving in either direction. It's much more interesting to move in one direction, then go, oh shit, I'm moving in this direction, then move in the other direction. And then go, oh no, I, I can't be in that direction. I have to move in this other direction. Then the movement is what could be interesting. So that's what I would say about this one. You know, if I can be, I don't know, it feels like I'm being a bad acting teacher when I say don't worry about the, uh, don't worry about the circumstance of the scene and just have a thought, you know, that can be your own private thing. Well, you are. <laughs> no, Sorry. But I want, I'd like to pick up on this idea of a shortcut because it seems to me you're talking about justifying something. You either asked to do something by the director or you've chosen to do it or you know that there's a moment to be had and therefore you are justifying it and motivating it in whatever means you can in order for it to be actually successful and truthful. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, okay. Well, that, yeah, I mean, sometimes you've got to act very quickly through direction, but my kind of answer to that would be, isn't it more fun to create the character's point of view of that and have work out of that? I think it is. I think in my experience that when I've seen people do that and haven't really done it enough to let it go, that it can get very heavy. Sure. And when you let go and you just have a different thought about really anything, it can really release you. And the audience, you know, the thing that you are actually motivated by doesn't have to be the same thing that the character is motivated by or that is happening in the in the circumstance. As, as long as the behave, the end result is... Uh, I don't know. I feel like I feel like no, I'm being judged. No, but you, but it, like, you know, yeah. Like, but no, this is good to talk about. <laughs> it's, it's a real, but it's a real point. And you, you're right; it works. 
I'm not saying it does. There's plenty of instances out there. There's the story about Dustin Hoffman, who in his first movie couldn't get what the director asked him to do because he wasn't, he couldn't see him thinking enough about the dilemma that he was in while he was drinking alone in this bar. And in the end, he just started to think about his contents of his shopping that he needed to put into his fridge that night. And the director went, got it, thanks. You were literally thinking about something then. So, you know, the reality of doing. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, no, absolutely. So it does work. My only thing is, is the creative process, why not fuck around? with finding bridges and personalizing it and maybe as a last result for me perhaps it's like okay this isn't working this isn't happening I just need to give this effect so I can do something that isn't related and maybe that also happens improvisationally that can happen when you're improvising and in the moment things can impact in on you but for me the process the actual process of creating something that enables one to do that is more fun and satisfying that's what I would say Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's why I started by saying, I agree with what Andrea and Gary are saying. But if you feel in the moment that either you found that you haven't done enough work and you need to perform in that moment, or you find that I'm holding on because there's so much stuff going on in my head and so many things that I'm thinking about in terms of, I need to bring all this stuff forward. And and that is someone who hasn't done you know, who is thinking about all this stuff, but then hasn't kind of gone, okay, well, what is the actual action? What is the actual behavior in this particular moment that I need that is going to get this across? Yeah, it, um, can, get, it can get you out of trouble and it can help yeah. solve yeah. the problem. So I just wanted to throw it out there. Cool. I'm a legitimate teacher too. We've got to be able to discuss yeah. that's just, the point. And that, yeah. Out of it comes all of this talk. It's not yeah. what. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> let's get into the second question okay similar but different another question if in the script is written she stares blankly at the wall like she's done she just blankly staring the same goes for she's just sitting bored she does not care like are your eyes ever blank for the camera it can't be or how do you play that being like a ball that is still interesting and that is not uh, dead um i think it's covered on page 42 or something of mr meisner's book actually i think that it's the simplicity of doing we're really talking about Mr. Meisner talks about one of the first lessons he gives in the reality of doing is he asks everybody to close their eyes and to listen and to count the number of cars that they can hear going by on the street outside. And then he asks them, how many cars did you hear? And then he says, now, were you really listening for the sound of cars? Yes. Or were you acting that you were listening to the sound of cars? No. I mean, some of them apparently were starting off with like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to look like I'm listening to the sound of cars. But then that fell away and it just became the simple human act of listening to the sound of cars. And I think it's a little bit what we're talking about here. It's there's always something in it. What's the boredom? Is it I'm tuning something out? What are you actively doing? Even if there's a, a negative aspect to it, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. There's something in that as well. I'm not listening to you. Why? Are you denying me something? Are you being passive aggressive with me? Are you not capable right now because you're so overwhelmed with inner anxiety? You really can't just listen. You're trying to tune me out. Like, what is that thing that you can grab onto and actually act? And then I would also say that stillness is highly underrated. There are plenty of moments in between that are quite poetic, really. And if it's just a moment in between, then you need to let that be what it is. But if it's written in a screenplay or in a play, look, she's just staring bored. That, to me, is a signal. There's something to explore here. There's something that I need to take care of here as an actor. What's my personal point of view about the other character or about this moment? And then why did the writer feel it's important to describe me this way? Am I disengaging from the conversation? Am I judging my partner somehow? Am I, you know, am I sitting out on purpose? Am I too overwhelmed by it? Why is it in 
the script. And then I understand what to do with it and how much weight or attention or time or how many beats to give it. I know in musical terms, is this a grace note or is this like a basso profundo? Is this something really important that I need to pay attention to? But just because there's an absence of dialogue does not at all mean that there's an absence of doing or an absence of a moment. That's what I have to say. Cool. Brian? I, I mean, I would agree with what Andrea said, that very often, even though it might be written that someone is bored or someone is dead inside, I mean, if, if it's written that you're dead inside, <laughs> maybe in that moment, you do need to be just really not doing anything, counting your breaths, you know what I'm saying? And it could be that that's what the story needs at that point, is not to see someone alive and fighting for something, but they need to see someone who is doing the opposite of that for some reason. But I think in general, what Andrea said is what I would probably start with, is what is the circumstance of me being in that state? And what does that mean? And is there something internal active that I'm doing, even though the externalities are not very active, that will trigger probably enough of what you need for the scene. I mean, there's, you know, the, the other thing Meisner was famous for saying is there's no such thing as nothing. Mm-hmm. So even if you're bored or you're disconnected, then that's not nothing, that is something. And so there's going to be something to connect to there. Yeah. Talk to and, the mom of any teenager. Yeah. Like being bored is a state that can invoke a very strong response in your acting partners. And in your mothers yeah. and your and teachers, for God's sake, don't be bored. Right. Don't sit around here being bored. Like, you're right. There's always something. Yeah. And if you connect up that state with what is your objective or what is your want or what is your need in the scene or the super objective of the whole piece, then that state is going to not be a state within itself. It's going to be a transition from one thing to another thing. Mm-hmm. And so that will take on a certain quality. And if you know what you want or what your need is or what your action is for that smaller segment, then you're going to know, okay, well, how does that place of stillness relate to what comes before and what comes after it? Because probably mm-hmm. you're going to be active before and uh, after this place of stillness, because yeah. otherwise you're dead, <laughs> which you probably aren't going to be. Yeah, I think that's a really good point you ended up on there. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of sad that you've not become more contrary on this one. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, I could be. <laughs> I want you to sit there. Just sit there and do nothing then. <laughs> just, if the, just do whatever the director wants. Just be bored. <laughs> no, it's a really good point there. Um, well, first of all, It's a bit like drunkenness or other states. It's like you've got to qualify it for yourself, Mm -hmm. first of all. Then you can then decide on the best way of executing that. But I would first go, well, what is boredom? I mean, boredom happens when we're perceiving any current situation as devoid of meaning or engagement. It's defined in terms of attention when we're not able to engage our attention internally or with external information and we get bored, our thoughts, our feelings, the stimulus that's around us, and we're not satisfied with it and our focus isn't engaged. So that then is a follow-on with there's a dissatisfaction with the present, uninterested with what's present. So what to do with that? It's kind of to do with what you said, Brian, what you want right now and your attachment to what you need right now that you're not getting which then doesn't engage you. And then, you know, what is it that you do internally? Does something happen to the character to make them stare blankly or sit bored? As you just said, what preceded this, which has got to be to do with some kind of purpose or what's going on inside? And then how can you manifest that externally through behaviour? What are the external behaviours of boredom? Choose the quality of that in relation to the type of boredom you're choosing and making a choice about or whether it's prescribed in the script, like drunkenness. Drunkenness, are you a little bit tipsy? Are you raging drunk or are you through it all and maudlin, cynical with the world type of drunk? So what quality is it? Are you dead bored and just like non-responsive bored? Are you restless bored and you are fidgety? So then if you've tackled that, both sides of it, internal and external, then that's kind of what I would throw at it. First of all, is looking at what's going on internally while you're staring at the wall blankly. If you're sitting just bored, it's because the time right now is not playing out as you want it to be and doesn't engage you. And then as much as I was pushing back on the whole idea of having a different thought and not being involved in the circumstance of the scene, 
in the previous question, I do think that having an idea of what's happening in this kind of moment where you know why you're bored and what's preceding it, as Gary said, but then be prepared for the director to say, do less, do less, do less until you're really the physical manifestation of the behavior is really incredibly minimal to the point of you know, non-existence. But that doesn't mean that the internal justification for that is void. Right. I mean, if you're looking at disengagement, you could be daydreaming. You could be internally daydreaming about something else that is you're switching off from on the outside. That could also be it. But the point is, as you rightly say, there's something going on internally. Yeah. You know. So you both agree with me, essentially, right? We all agree. No, we don't. <laughs> we don't agree. No, Brian, Brian and myself agree. Uh, uh, this time, you're out of the equation. Next I am time, not on this third, out. On this third answer, it'll be you two agreeing and I will be out. out. Oh, I am not out. This has, got, this has gotten very complicated all of a sudden. <laughs> all right, what's the next one? Well, they're complicated questions. They're real nitty-gritty, and there's ways. There's lots of ways of getting a result. The next question, the final question is, and <laughs> this will be interesting. And the same goes for, which always is confusing for me. I know you've spoken about it already before, but I'm still confused when I have to play that I'm lying, that I play that I play, that it should be somehow seen that she's lying. But of course, I know I should be playing or saying something the best I can. But at the same time, there is something wrong with the person, some tick, something is there. But how to play it real for the camera, that it does not look like bad acting, but it's actually, oh, she's lying. And she's very good. Liar. <laughs> Mm. It's like acting bad acting <laughs> in a way. Can be. You know, like when you watch actors who are playing actors acting poorly. We watched Barry, right? We, we, we talked mm -hmm. about Barry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the actors in that acting class, the difference when they are acting badly and then acting well as actors in the circumstance of the show, and then they themselves are acting <laughs> so there's a, there's a, there's multiple layers of truth. So I think, I think it, it's very similar to that in a certain sense, because where the truth is from the circumstances point of view is different from what you're saying or even how you're behaving and you kind of know it. Yeah. I think it's a, it's similar to the previous question. There's a certain there's a through line. Yeah. There's a certain similarity to the sort of execution of it or the creation of it. Because for me, I think you have to, again, be clear with the circumstances and identify what kind of lie it is, whether it's a good one or not a good one. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. how concealed is the lie and what will help to identify that, if it's not clear, is also what is it that the audience know up to that point? If they're in the know and they're complicit, then do you have to give so much away? The text will do it for you because they've seen it, something happen, and then they hear you saying something else. Exactly, which is kind of what you were saying before about the other question. Right. Absolutely. If the audience know about it, then actually all these ticks and these sort of poker tells, if you like, are maybe going to give mixed signals and overburden it. But I mean, look at a very good liar. I mean, if you look at a very good liar, a very good liar tells a lie the same way as an honest person tells the truth, straight down the line. Now, that's sociopathic, but it's very realistic. And the thing about habitual liars is that they learn to be so convincing. And in the case of sociopaths, <laughs> they can actually believe what they say becomes true because they say it. Look at O.J. Simpson. Well, I think there's another more recent example. Of yes. That, the orange blimp. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, but I think what's important, first of all, before you do anything with any of the work here, is you've got to identify what kind of lie it is. Is it implicit or is it explicit? How concealed is it? And then there's various ways of going about that. I mean, you know, one of the things you could do is research behavior and all of the tells of lying if you want to make it a little bit more available to read in degrees of subtlety, let's say. But you should look at what people do when they lie. You know, fake smiles being one. 
Another thing that people do when they lie, which may be more of an internal thing, or isn't a more of an internal thing, which may work for a close-up on camera or more for camera work, is when you are lying or when someone lies, again, depending on how good they are, there's a story inside, which is the truth, and then there's what you're doing outside. And there's something that goes on in the critical faculty of the mind, which is comparing the two and how well you're doing with one against the other. So there is some kind of internal engagement going on. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So you can, let's say, if you don't want to give any behavioral tells away in any obvious way, you can get into the mechanism of how lying occurs in the mind and what happens when you're speaking the lie, but you know the truth inside yourself. That can also just very, very subtly, if you give over to it and let it flow, give something away because that's what you really do. So again, there's a natural organic replication of what we do in real life. And like we talked about in the previous question, what kind of lie is it? Why are you lying about it? What do you want from and all the normal questions, right? What do you want from the other person? What's at stake if they find out that the lie is there, right? All of that stuff will play into it. And then I think looking at, like you said, Gary, the physiological tells what people do when they're lying. They might overemphasize. They might try too hard to get someone to believe it, you know, in addition to all the mask or gestures that you might associate with lying. Yeah. A, a really big one is standing very still. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so again, you've got choices here. It just depends on, you know, whether you want that to read to the audience and how much do they know and not know. And if they don't know and you're standing still, maybe the revelation will come later on and go, my God, what a smooth operator. Yeah. Did I ever tell this story? When I was younger, I can't remember what my mom and I were fighting about, but I said, I don't, I don't like doing this thing. I don't like it or whatever. I don't, I don't like this thing that was happening. And she said, well, you're an actor, lie about it. And I was like, that's not what we do. <laughs> and in my head, I thought, that's not what we do. You know, we- right. What what actors are training to do is be more truthful than we allow ourselves to be in real life, mm -hmm. even though the circumstance surrounding what we're living out in any given moment while we're acting is imaginary. But it's not, we're not lying within those circumstances. And so I think part of Petra's question was about the juxtaposition of, you know, an actor being truthful in the moment, which is based in imaginary circumstances, which, you know, a lay person might call lying. But then that truth that they're playing is in fact a lie, all of the layers of that. And so I think if you can get to the place where the thing that you're doing, the base layer is truthfulness then all of the stuff that Gary was just talking about in terms of the physiological truths of lying <laughs> become the same as if you were lying in real life, even though the life that you are portraying is based on a what you might call a lie because it's not real. Yeah. How successful a lie you are is measured against how many tells are and alarm bells are going off. If you're a terrible liar, you should be able to know. If you're a very good liar, then it's appearing like the truth. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I was just talking about the difference between acting and lying, because you could be a bad liar and a good actor, even though, you know, someone from the outside would say, well, acting is basically lying because it's not based in your, in an actual truthful circumstance. <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to go first on this question just because, you know, I didn't want you guys to gang up on me again. Just kidding. I think this is a great question. There's something in her assumption about it that I think you've both addressed really nicely, which is that, you know, there's an assumption that I'm hearing that somehow you have to convey to the audience that you're lying. That to me means you need to take a real overview of, again, as Gary said, what kind of a person am I? How adept am I with? the lie? How easy is this off the tongue? Why do I make the decision to do it? How comfortable am I with it? How fluid am I with it? So it's not about telegraphing it. I think it's about understanding it from the point of view of an actor who's intelligent with his or her script and understanding the moment well, and then doing it. Because look how much great drama is based on lies that are told by characters, right? There's um, The Usual Suspects, for example. What a great movie. But, you know, we all were taken on this ride because we accepted certain things as truth. 
And that's inherent in a great deal of dramatic structure. There are lies of omission and there are lies of intention. And so I think you just need to make a determination about what's really going on and then find that within you. More from a character perspective, find that within you and then do your best to say the thing that you need to say given the circumstances. And maybe you're somebody who's very, again, very adept at saying an untruth, or maybe it shows all over your face when you do it. But I think to go into it and feel that I need to display something is getting you outside of yourself and it's getting you away from the truth of the moment personally. So I I think you guys have covered it really nicely and I'm, I'm in agreement about it. Take a look at what it really is and then just live that out to the best of your ability. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that was a nice marathon session. Three questions, <laughs> bunch of different answers. We want to know from our listeners out there how you guys feel about these questions. Definitely get in touch at Vagabond Actors on Twitter and Instagram and on our Facebook page and let us know how you think. What do you do when you have to be bored or lie? Or do you agree with me? Are you team Brian or team Gary or team Andrea for these? Uh, do you play the circumstance or do you just have a thought? I don't know. Let us know. Um, <laughs> team Vagabond. Uh, They're team Vagabond. Team Vagabond. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're a ragtag bunch. It all um, out of the stop sign. Exactly. 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 <laughs> and before we go, we do want to share some top tips about what we've been watching or experiencing this week. So uh, Gary, what have you watched this week? Yeah, I watched a fantastic movie. One of our favorite directors, a very actor-friendly director, John Cassavetes. Mm. His film, Minnie and Moscovitz, mm. which I hadn't seen before, and it was about time I saw it. And it stars Gina Rowlands and Seymour Cassell, and it's uh, about a museum curator falling in love with a crazy parking attendant. And it's got all of the tropes and sort of stylistic freewheeling that Cassavetes films can have, intensity and psychodrama and all the rest of it. But the reason I'm picking that is more to spotlight a very unusual character actor called Timothy Carey, who plays the character of Morgan Morgan in the film. And he's had one of the most unusual careers in Hollywood as a character actor. He's a really oddball. I think he was a very difficult personality. And he obtained cult status for his portrayals of doomed, psychotic, plain crazy characters. And there is a scene in Minion Moscovitz when Seymour Cassell is in a late night diner, having a cup of coffee and some food. And this sort of street tramp vagabond character comes and sits next to him and just steals the whole performance. And he's on there for about 10 minutes and he's bonkers. <laughs> he's bonkers, but he's not putting it on. And there's acting going on, but you can't really see it. It's just a phenomenal left of center character role. Mm-hmm. Can we And we talked about cameos in a previous episode, and this is a really good example of someone cramming in as much as possible in relation to the psychology of this character in one hit. Hmm. So, Hmm. Minion Moskowitz is my tip for the week. Hmm. Awesome. Wonderful. Andrea, what about you? Well, I'm back to Anna Ferris's podcast. Listen to another episode with Kira Sedgwick, who's very interesting, really bright. She talks a lot about directing and acting and the two skills, different kind of skill sets and where she feels comfortable and really interesting perspective on her career that's worthwhile. And then we're still in our Meg Ryan-a-thon and uh, I introduced my daughter to When Harry Met Sally which she declared had a very sort of boring first 20 minutes, but then she got into it. So I definitely recommend if you haven't seen that for a while, pick that up again. And then there's been a couple mentions recently of some Shirley MacLaine films. And so I'm slated to take a return visit to Terms of Endearment, which was really an amazing film. If you haven't seen that yet, I highly recommend it. I think it's 1983 and that's Shirley MacLaine and Deborah Winger and Jack Nicholson, directed by James Brooks. Really beautiful work there. You know, I love her spontaneity. I don't know, like, like she has that quality where you just never know what's going to happen next. And it's a dynamic aspect to her, her energy and her performances. And you can see it all the way back in her early performances as well. Like I think recently, Gary, maybe you mentioned The Apartment 
with Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine. You see it there too. There's just there's there's always something bubbling underneath the surface, and it's really amazing to watch her work. So I highly recommend another look at Terms of Endearment as well. Cool. What about you, Brian? Well, I'm trying to think about what I've been watching, and I haven't really felt like I've been watching that much. I've been doing a lot of Chinese work. You know, Gary asked me a great question a couple of weeks ago, so I'll ask that right. of you. Okay. Is there something that you've seen before that made a really strong impact on you that you'd like to recommend? I think that watching Glenn Gary Glenn Ross oh. is good at any point. Mm-hmm. I've, I've probably watched it at least 50 times and I could probably watch it a lot more. I just feel like as difficult as David Mamet can be in terms of mm-hmm. his kind of outlook, it's such strong performances from everyone. I just love that movie. I love the play mm-hmm. as well, but... Uh, the movie, I think that was mm-hmm. the first movie that I'd ever seen that I walked out of the theater going, holy shit, this is mm-hmm. amazing. Um, nice. Like masterclass performances from mm-hmm. the entire cast. Yeah. So. Yeah, it is. It's a, That's a really good one. And um, what's great about it is it's all acting. There's no cinematography. It's not yeah. a cinema piece. That's why it's so riveting because, like you say, it's all acting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it just, everything fits. Good one. Yeah. So that's mine. Good stuff. So if you want to get in touch with us as individuals, Gary, how can people get in touch with you? Well, I am available seven days a week on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Gary Condest for all of them. Or if you'd like to commit some words to a telegraphic letter that is known as email, then get on my website and the contact page at GaryCondes.com. I'd love to hear from you. <laughs> awesome. Andrea, how about you? You can find me at Andrea Helene 3 on Instagram or on Twitter at Andrea underscore Helene. And I am at Brian Casp on Twitter and Instagram, and I have a Facebook page. And I just had an article come out about me on expats.cc. So check that out because I am pretty cool, evidently. Um, (laughs) You're totally cool. You guys are both totally cool. Can I just say? All right. So... Thank you all for listening out there. As I said, please get in touch with us, either as individuals or on Vagabond Actors social media and Facebook. And we hope you join us next week for another exciting episode. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask. You guys who work in casting, wear a mask, you especially. And stay creative. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Thanks, folks. Bye. Bye.